This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Aubrey DeBeer to the show, or as you may know her, baby sleep doctor. Sleep and more specifically, sleep training can be such a contentious conversation in the mom community. And I've brought Dr. Aubrey on today to discuss some of the myths around sleep and sleep training and to unpack whose needs are being centered and prioritized when we're talking, teaching our babies and children about sleep. Because as contentious and hard of a conversation as it might be, sleep is absolutely fundamental to the well-being of both parents and children, the family unit as a whole. And therefore, these are conversations that we need to be entertaining and discussing on the podcast. In this episode, we'll touch on whether all sleep training is cry it out. We'll discuss attachment and relationship with our child and whether that's impacted by sleep training. And we'll unpack some of the myths around whether babies can be taught to sleep or not. Is it a skill that we learn or is it something that is biological that we do? All of these things and so much more are discussed in this interview, so get ready to hear my conversation with Dr. Aubrey. Hey mama, freebie alert. Psyched mommy Dr. Asherina Reem and I created a free guide to help you turn down the intensity of your anger and rage starting today. We created this guide because we recognize that anger can unexpectedly show up in parenthood and wreak havoc on your relationships. We also recognize that it doesn't feel very good to be angry. It's especially uncomfortable when shame and guilt show up too. This tool will help you turn down the volume on your anger. This resource includes three research-backed tools that will jumpstart you on your journey to gaining control of your anger starting today. In this guide, we teach you first to develop body awareness skills. This is especially important because anger can interfere with your ability to connect with your own body. Second, how to disrupt the pattern of negative thoughts. Negative thoughts can really pour gasoline on your feelings of irritation and annoyance, erupting into full on anger and rage. And third, we cover how to repair with those you care about. This freebie will walk you through an apology framework that you can use to mend the relationships that have been impacted by anger expressed outward. This free resource includes my favorite three go-to skills I use to regulate my own frustration and anger. Download the guide and you can start today to put these skills into practice too. To get your free copy of three tools to start managing rage today, head to happyasamother.co slash manage rage. That's happyasamother.co slash manage rage. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. 
Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I don't know how in the world, in the IG powers, we are just connecting, (laughs) but I'm so (laughs) excited that we have, and I'm so excited to have you with us today. I'm excited to join you. Thank you for having me, and I'm excited to connect with you. Yeah, usually I rubbed shoulders with most of the people in the parenting space. I was like, wait a minute, this is like... (laughs) A landmine. Fine. I was so excited to discover you. I think it was Fruits of Motherhood that connected us, actually, which was really exciting. She's the best, so she knows everyone, right? (laughs) Yeah. I really love, well, the topic of sleep, obviously. This is a podcast for moms. Sleep is of one of the utmost sort of discussed things, especially even when we're talking mental health and trying to get a sleep plan in place and things. But I find, and I don't know if you've heard this a lot, that like it's really hard to find people who I trust to talk about sleep and to give sleep advice because there are so many sort of like sleep coaches out there or I guess the sleep space feels kind of like unregulated. So when I saw that it was your specialty and you also are a doctor of psychology, I was like, we got to have you on. We got to get into it. I'm so glad. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of misinformation out there when it comes to sleep and it can be really fear-based and that can be really hard for parents to kind of decipher what is true, what is not true. How do I make these decisions? So, so I'm glad that you found me and that we can talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How did you, through going through grad school and through niching down, how did you find yourself in the IG world, I guess one, and the IG world of sleep? Yeah, it's a good question. So my history as far as psychology is in forensic psychology and clinical. So I do therapy also. But with forensics, you know, I really deal with people's obviously their mental health and a lot of negative outcomes that are preventable, right? And so I dealt with some really dark stuff, you know, obviously the criminal cases and things like that. But just becoming a mom during that process, I realized that a caregiver's well-being and mental health is so important to raising happy, healthy children and how we respond in situations and that there are a lot of things that come back to just, are you getting the rest that you need? Are children getting the rest that they need? And so through that process, I learned more and more about sleep for babies and for parents Mm. with my own daughter. And then I actually went through sleep training with my daughter and it was you know, heaven sent for us. It was the exact right thing for us to do. And so then I went on to get actually certified through a well-known sleep expert and sleep coach. And I got certified through her process. And then I kind of narrowed it down to continue working on that for the well-being of parents. And it really was something mm-hmm. that I wanted to help parents, you know, educate them on what is possible, what is important and, and how to kind of navigate child sleep for them. And so then I kind of just started to post some things here and there on Instagram and it really took off. I was actually very surprised. And so I created guides to be able to work with parents and help them to get the rest they need and help their children sleep better. So it kind of, I'm not really sure how it all went into Instagram, but it worked out well. So here I am. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You've amassed quite a following. Can we define sleep training before we even get into our conversation today, because I feel like on a lot of places or in these like arguments that break out online, sleep training is automatically defaulted to like 
the utmost extreme form of cry it out or something like that. So as we're talking sleep training today, what are we talking? So sleep training really is just simply giving babies and children the tools and the opportunity to be able to learn their own techniques to fall asleep and get back to sleep. So it's kind of training parents, honestly, that if you kind of pause and wait and give babies space and be able to kind of understand their cues and their needs and give them the opportunity to get the rest that they need, they will eventually figure out how they get comfortable, how they are able to fall asleep. So when we hear cry it out, you're right. That's the most extreme version of this opportunity to teach skills. Mm -hmm. Cry it out. Most often people are meaning extinction, right? So you put your baby down and you don't return until morning and they can just cry themselves to sleep and you'll see them when the sun rises. And that's not sleep training. That's maybe old school and, and something that people have done and and that even in itself is not harmful and it's, it's okay, a one-off, but that is not typical sleep training. And so sleep training really is about being responsive, being there to be able to provide comfort as necessary. However, giving babies the opportunity when they're old enough developmentally, giving them the opportunity and the space to be able to learn how they best fall asleep and therefore can get back to sleep in the night when they have these night wakings that are natural. It's really about parents being able to understand their baby's needs and cues and giving them the space to be able to figure out how to get to sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like this is such a, a polarizing topic, though it shouldn't it is. feel like it doesn't feel like it needs to be. Yeah. But when we're talking sleep and we're talking like well-being, what I find often happens, and you might have had conversations like these as well, where we get almost in a war of like, parents' needs versus babies' needs. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do any sort of sleep training or teach baby to sleep maybe a little bit more independently, then you're maybe being selfish or prioritizing your needs over baby. Or if you are maybe like co-sleeping and nursing to sleep all the time and bed sharing and co-sleeping as a family, then maybe you are, you know, prioritizing baby's needs over your needs and the family's needs. And it kind of feels like this war of needs at times, like when you're sitting down with clients and you're sort of coming up with a plan with a family, what is the approach there? Well, so, you know, I think you're asking kind of two questions in there. And so whose needs is this about and how do you deal with each family, you know, independently as, as every family is different, right? So it's kind of about everybody's needs, honestly. I mean, we all need sleep. We all need to sleep well. So babies also need sleep. And if, you know, nursing to sleep or rocking to sleep allows your child to sleep well and you don't mind doing it and it works for your baby and you go to sleep and it's all working, then that's great. Then you should totally do Mm -hmm. that. And you don't have to Mm -hmm. sleep train. Not everybody has to sleep train. However, if rocking or feeding to sleep or pacifier or whatever it is that is putting your baby to sleep outside of themselves is not working, and they're waking up multiple times in the night, or they can't fall asleep for two hours because you know you're, you have to bounce them on a ball, and that's how they fall asleep, then they're not getting the rest that they need. And babies do need sleep. Children need sleep. They need it for their physical and cognitive development and growth. I mean, we all need sleep. I always say when we get sick, what's one thing that happens? Our body literally forces us to sleep. It's restorative. you know. So we all mm-hmm. need sleep, babies included. And parents need sleep too, and they deserve it. And honestly, parents' mental health is very much tied to lack of sleep or getting enough sleep. And so we're better parents when we're well-rested. We're you know, happier people when we're well-rested. And our babies are well when we are well. So it really mm. is tied together. So to say like, oh, parents' mental health 
isn't part of this or parents' sleep needs is, you know, prioritized over babies. Well, I think that babies benefit from parents who are well-rested and happy and present and your baby also needs sleep. So, so when I sit down with parents and they say, do I have to sleep train? No, of course not. You don't have to, if it's working for you, if what you're doing now is working and everyone is getting some amount of rest, then then that's fine. But if it's not Mm -hmm. working because maybe mom doesn't want to be the one who has to nurse to sleep because she's the only one who can do it, right? And maybe she's like, right. I'm, I'm tired, or I have other children, or I'm going back to work, and what am I going to do? Right. They don't sleep without me, or the baby falls asleep fine, but then is up every hour through the night and nursing, and, and it's just not working. And in that case, they say, okay, then let's work on getting all of you some more rest through helping your baby learn how to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not about centering anyone's needs over the other. It sounds like it's really collectively considering the family's needs and the position that they're in right. to come up with a solution or a plan to help them in that in that situation. Yeah, I mean the needs are pretty tied together, you know. So yeah. if nursing to sleep or rocking to sleep or any of this stuff or bed sharing is causing turmoil for the family, right? A lot of times it's one parent is sleeping in a different room or on the couch and babies in bed with the other parent, you know. If that works for your family, then that's fine. But if it's causing turmoil, like the couple is not together anymore in the room and baby's coming first, and that still affects the baby, right? If parents are not happy and arguing or not resting, then that's still going to affect the child and the family. So it really is tied together. Yeah, I can see that. It makes me reflect on my first time mom experience and having these conversations about certain times in postpartum feel like they bring such like real flashbacks with them, especially when we talk about sleep. I see clients yeah. get like this too, where it's like, oh, it was such a real experience. As somebody who experienced some postpartum anxiety, mm-hmm. some of the things that you're describing were things that I found myself in. So like not giving baby the opportunity to resettle or wanting to do things right, quote unquote, like air quotes, you know, so right that, you know, when the nurse told me to like wake my baby and feed them every two hours because, you know, we want to make sure they're gaining weight and stuff. I did that for, I don't even know how long. And Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure created a horrible sleeper as my first experience with a newborn, Right. right? Things like not letting them settle just like on any little like move or like wine or just certain things that I didn't know or I got more relaxed in as I got better control of my anxiety and things at that time Sure, could leave a little bit of space for. So it sounds like there are some really practical little things that parents can be doing to help. Absolutely. Even just create the space for the baby to learn to sleep in their own way. Yes. Well, so sleep training doesn't, you can't formally sleep train until after four months at least. And some people even wait until closer to six months or or later, whenever they learn about it and want to, and that's totally fine. But before four months, you can definitely be practicing, introducing different skills, or like you said, you know, waiting and waiting to respond. It could be waiting one minute. You don't need to wait and let this new baby cry themselves to sleep. Absolutely not. And you shouldn't do that, right? Yeah. But it's it's about giving them the opportunity to might they just kind of kick their feet around and go back to sleep. Or a lot of times little ones are still asleep. It's actually light sleep that they're in and they're moving and fussing and grunting and we're waking them up, you know, by grabbing them as soon as they make a noise. And so if you can just kind of stop for a second, pause, give them space, see what they're really doing. And then respond. And that can a lot of times be all that you have to do in the beginning to kind of just, oh, they weren't even awake yet. (laughs) Or they're crying out because they're truly hungry, then they go right back down. 
Or sometimes it's also babies are crying because they're tired and we're thinking they're hungry and we're overfeeding and then they're uncomfortable and then they're not sleeping well. And so being able to kind of just stop and, and understand their cues and what their baby is actually kind of needing in those moments helps us to be able to respond a little bit better. Yeah. And as you alluded to, like I could imagine that this looks different at each stage. And I saw on your website that you've got like guides and it's broken down by like, you know, newborn sleep to baby sleep and and toddler and, you know, so on. Because I can imagine that the sleep needs or how we even approach sleep looks quite different depending on the stage of development that they're in. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So one of the things I love that you talk about often are like some of these myths of sleep. And I saw them on your website and I've seen them in some of your content. Can we unpack some of those here today? Yes, of course. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Like I feel like one of the main ones, and you already sort of touched on it briefly here, is this idea that if my baby cries in the process of learning to sleep, that I am like harming them Mm -hmm. in some way. Can we unpack that one a little bit? Yes. Yes. Let's do that because it's such a common question. It's such a fear of parents, right? Like we don't want to cause our baby any harm. We are just figuring out what this baby needs and and we're becoming parents and like, what's going on here? I'm confused already. And if they cry, am I being, you know, evil and traumatizing them, but babies cry. It's what they do, right? They cry for all kinds of needs. And, you know, I actually spoke with a family the other day and the dad, like it clicked for him. And they said, sleep is also a need and babies do cry because they're tired and they need sleep. And so crying around sleep is not somehow different than any other crying. And it does get Mm. this, like the sense that if they cry at nighttime, (laughs) if they cry around sleep, you will, you know, harm them. But any other crying is okay. But that that crying is not okay. And it's just crying is crying. You know, they're they're tired, they're hungry, they, they have a dirty diaper. It's all crying because that's how they communicate. They don't have words to speak. And so if you really are aware, you've been fed, you have a clean diaper, everything is okay, and now you're just tired, then some crying around falling asleep is not going to harm them, right? And especially not after just a couple of nights of like crying while they kind of settle it's okay. It's not harmful. Crying is not harmful. (laughs) Babies cry all the time. Babies with colic cry all the time. And we're not talking about harming those babies, right? We're doing our best. We're responding however we can. We're trying, trying, trying to figure out what they need. And sometimes they don't need anything. They just need to go to sleep. And so crying around sleep is not this harmful, traumatizing thing that we're doing to our children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can see what you're saying where like all of a sudden. I don't know, sometimes when we're like driving, they're like crying in the car seat until we have to get to our destination. Or there are these other times when like, you know, we maybe have our hands full because we're a mom of multiples and baby is fussing. And as a mom of three, I've gotten really good at distinguishing what type of cry we have going on and how urgent it is, right? And so sometimes it's more of a protest cry. Other times it's like Mm -hmm. a full-on ragey cry. And then maybe we're going to be more responsive in those moments. No, that's a really good point that you do. You you start to learn what kind of cry this is. And you are still responsive. You know, you still, I hear you. It's okay, but you're tired. So I'm here with you while you fall asleep. You need some extra comfort. I'm here for that. But crying in itself or crying around sleep is not somehow different than crying in their car seat or crying to get their diaper changed, right? We still change their diaper and we still put them in their car seat and they still need to go to sleep at a certain point. So again, if what you're doing to put your baby to sleep is working for you and they're getting rest and you don't have to 
sleep train or introduce any independent sleep skills if you don't want to. Right. It's for the people who this isn't working for our family. This baby is awake all night long. They're not getting the rest that they need. Then let's give them the space to kind of learn how to sleep better. Yeah, it's exactly that. You're not saying change your ways. What you're doing is wrong in any way. If it's working for you, then that's great. Mm -hmm. I remember I was nursing my first to sleep and I would put him down within 45 minutes. He would wake up. Yeah. And this went on and I endured this for longer than I care to admit, oh. you know? Yeah. And I was just like, okay, either like I got a lemon or I'm doing something <laughs> wrong here, you know? Like there's something that I can be doing differently because this is just – it got sort of like to a breaking point where it's like none of us can function. Mm-hmm. He's not happy. I'm not happy. Dad's not happy because none of us are sleeping. Yeah. And – something in that moment had to shift. And so we were actually talking to the pediatrician about it at some of the follow-ups and she gave us some tips and, you know, some things to do. And I was like, okay, there is like skills to be learned here, right? Yes. Yes. You know, sleeping is biological and we all will sleep eventually, right? We all will sleep. So it's not that you're teaching them how to sleep because they will fall asleep with a pacifier or on the breast or bottle or by rocking, they will fall asleep. But sleeping well is a learned skill. And, you know, a lot of things that are natural are still difficult and have some time to be learned on both parts. I mean, breastfeeding is natural and yet we have lactation consultants, right? Because it might not come naturally to the baby or to the parent, right? So sometimes you still need to teach a baby how to nurse, how to nurse well, how to latch, right? So yes, sleep is biological and it will happen, but sleeping well, a lot of times takes skills. And so giving them that opportunity to learn their own skills is really helpful long-term. Right. That's one of the other myths that you touch on is like that sleep is natural and can't be taught is Mm -hmm. one of the myths. And as a therapist who works with adults, I can tell you, I teach sleep hygiene all the time. (laughs) Like even into our adulthood, there are probably several of you listening who struggle with insomnia or falling asleep or staying asleep. And sleep hygiene skills are something that I teach in therapy frequently with adults even. So yes, so yes, like you said, it's biological, but there are things that we can do to improve that sleep is what I'm hearing. Right. I mean, people will say you're, you're not going to send your child off to college with a pacifier or with rocking them to sleep. Of course not. But it turns into something different. It turns into new ways of having to have outside help to fall asleep. And there are a lot of over-medicated adults who need melatonin to go to sleep or prescriptions to go to sleep or even just falling asleep with the TV on. and So it turns into other ways of needing help to get to sleep. So it's not something Mm. we even grow out of necessarily either. And so really being able to learn helpful skills to get the best rest that you can, even for small children, is only helpful. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's not something that naturally comes over time or will, oh, by the time they turn five, then they'll sleep well, maybe, and also maybe not. So it's just, if you're open to it, it can be a really helpful thing. Yeah. And it sounds like these things are, for example, I'm having a few thoughts at the same time here. For example, I nursed my first to sleep and it became a challenge for us because Anytime he wasn't nursing, then he was like waking up. Mm -hmm. And so it was a major disruption. Whereas I nursed my second right before sleep, um, but not to sleep entirely. And it never became a problem. 
And so I think that we never needed to change up our nighttime routine of nursing to sleep because there weren't any sleep disturbances for him. And it was simple and it was smooth and easy and it worked for us. But in the situation of my first, something had to be done because what we were doing wasn't working. And so again, it's like, if we're going to talk about some of these like air quotes, like sleep props or like things that, you know, people might feel strongly about, it's not that if you're using them, that that's a problem. It's a problem if it's a creating a problem for you. Exactly. And that's when we start to explore this. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. And also there's this idea that babies couldn't possibly fall asleep any other way. A lot of times I hear that from parents, like, what do you mean put them down without feeding them to sleep or rocking them to sleep or without a pacifier? It would be impossible for them to just close their eyes and go to sleep. And so there is this idea that like you have to be doing something to put your babies to sleep. And sure, it becomes that way, right? Because they get used to it. And so that's mm-hmm. all that they know. And so if you all of a sudden one day are like, I'm just going to try this, it might not go so smoothly, right? The very first time you try it. But if you're trying other ways over time and not relying on only one way to put that baby to sleep, then you will find actually they do fall asleep other ways. And actually when they have some opportunity and time to practice, like, oh, hanging out in their crib and eventually drifting off to sleep, they will go to sleep, you know? So it's this idea that like, we have to pick a way to put these babies to sleep and there's no other way that would be possible. Or like you mentioned having a lemon, you know, that I just have a bad sleeper. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that either. I don't think that some babies are just good sleepers and some are bad. Some might, you know, need a little more comfort than others. But really, when we're able to kind of tune in to what their needs are, and oh, this sounds like a tired cry, I'm going to start getting them ready to go down and avoid overtiredness, then we help them kind of get through that process a little bit more easily and start to figure out their own ways to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's bringing up so many different conversations I've had with people in the past, like in my mind, where it's like, having, again, quote, like good sleepers being seen as something that the mom is doing correctly and children who frequently wake being seen as something that the mom might be doing incorrectly. Right. Because sleep is such high stakes, right? Because there's so much that rises and falls on sleep it can really become this preoccupation in this postpartum stage of like whose baby is sleeping and what are you doing? It's like almost can feel a little bit competitive at times. And I had sleepers who woke for feedings in the night until they were a year old. But how my first one went to sleep and how my second and third ones went to sleep were worlds apart different, Mm -hmm. just gaining different skills and experience. So – I don't know what your thoughts or philosophy are on like sleeping through the night. My boys never slept entirely through the night, each until they were one. They would usually wake for like a one-off feed and around like the 3 a.m. kind of time Mm -hmm. consistently until one. But I fed them. They went back to sleep and it didn't disturb us. And so it wasn't something that I felt like had to be like extinguished, right? Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, you make a good point that it wasn't bothersome to you. I mean, it depends. I always say check with your pediatrician about night feeds, right? Because it's based on a lot of things like healthy weight and any, you know, medical concerns or anything like that. So I'm not going to say by this age, no baby should be eating in the middle of the night anymore or should be sleeping through. Yeah. However, a lot of times that one off kind of feed can be habit related, just that they wake at the time you feed them and they go back to sleep. So it's no problem. You know, yeah. if it becomes a problem that why are they still waking? They're 
very healthy weight, there is no reason they still need this middle of the night bottle, then a lot of times it's still about having them understand how to fall asleep independently at bedtime because we do all wake in the middle of the night. Nobody sleeps straight through 12 hours without awaking. We all wake in the middle of the night, so do babies. But are they able to get back to sleep on their own or do they still need some help getting back to sleep? And it's okay if it's not bothering the family and no one has a problem with this middle of the night feed and they go right back down, then it's fine. It's okay to do it. But Mm -hmm. it sounds like if there's any amount of feeding to sleep or even feeding to drowsy, they might have needed some help in the middle of the night to get back to sleep when they had a natural waking. So you fed them and they went back to sleep and that's fine. And it's over now, right? (laughs) They're sleeping and it's okay. Yeah, exactly. And it was fine. And it worked for us knowing like, you know, that they would just settle and whatever. And it was fine for us. But I think that I don't know what it is about sleep that it feels like it can be such like a competitive thing. Competitive might not be the right word, but. I don't know what it is either, but it's a tough topic. (laughs) It really is tough for people. And yeah, one camp against the other camp and it can be hard, but I think that people should really do what is best for their own family and what's going to get everyone the most rest. Mm. So, you know, for some families bringing babies into bed with them is not going to get them more rest, right? Like that is not this, no, none of us are sleeping and this is not working, right? Whereas another family might find that their toddler in bed with them, it's we all sleep fine. It's okay. And we can sleep past seven and it works. So right. it just kind of depends on what works better for you. Yeah. Some parents make these sleep decisions based off of their like parenting philosophy. And it's sort of, you know, we want to co-sleep and it's a part of how we're approaching our parenting values and, you know, we've structured our home. And I feel like that is a very different thing and a very different decision that I'm pulling you into bed out of desperation at three in the morning because nobody has slept yet, you know? Right. And so values-based decisions for your family regarding sleep and parenting and sleep philosophy are a different thing than these reactive decisions that we're making Mm -hmm. in these like distressing moments, especially if they go against something that we want to be doing, right? Like, yeah, maybe we don't want our children in our bed. And that's only going to cause you more stress during the day, right? right? That, oh, what did I do last night? I went against what I wanted. And now I'm feeling guilty for making this decision. And how do I change it? So, and reactive co-sleeping is a thing where it's out of desperation, like you said, and it usually leads to parents feeling pretty unhappy because it's not what they actually wanted to be doing. And so it's it's not always the best fit for their family when they've yeah. gone down that path. Yeah. And one of the other sleep training myths that you touch on is that sleep training will be a really stressful experience and therefore will affect the attachment, you know, or mm. disturb the relationship in some way. Can we unpack that one? Yes, <laughs> let's. Because attachment is about so many things and it is not about a couple of nights of crying before bedtime. And attachment is really about babies feeling that they are having a parent or caregiver that is responsive to their needs and meeting their needs and lots of other things too. But in that instance, responding to their needs, if their need is sleep and we are not providing them adequate sleep, then we are not actually meeting their need. Even if we are feeding them all night long or rocking them all night long, if they need sleep and we're not meeting that need, then it's not actually that helpful, right? So when babies need to sleep and they don't know how or they're not getting enough of it, then it's a good idea to look at ways to be able to help them get that need met. And doesn't mean it has to be sleep training, but sleep training is not going to come in and disrupt 
attachment or ruin attachment because attachment is happening all day long and all night long and in the way that you respond. And it's really about doing your best Mm -hmm. and doing your best does not mean meeting every single need around the clock. And like I said, if the need is for sleep, then being there for them while they're learning to fall asleep is meeting their need. So we have this fear that crying is going to disrupt attachment and that's just not how it works. Yes, if it's chronic crying and chronic stress and babies are left in their crib for days and weeks on end without anyone you know, comforting them or responding to them, that's going to have an issue on attachment. But an otherwise loving home and parents who are doing their best and some crying around bedtime is not going to have any effect on attachment. And actually sleep training a lot of times can support, not create, but can support a secure attachment. So if there's already a secure attachment in the family between the baby and caregiver, then again, parents getting the rest that they need and being a more present parent or caregiver during the day and responding to the baby's need for sleep by giving them the opportunity for sleep can actually support a secure attachment. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mealtime with kids can be stressful. But with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, 
psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc dot com slash momwell. I did an episode on making informed decisions around baby sleep with Dr. Elizabeth Adams, Mm -hmm. and we went through the research that you're like alluding to about the polarizing camps and they each have like resources and, you know, research and studies to sort of make these points about attachment and cortisol and stress hormone and all of these things. And when we really like look into some of the studies about, you know, children being left in their crib, we're talking like in orphanages, not interacted with, not having their needs tended to much in the day, let alone in the night. Like we're talking extreme versions of, you know, being left in a crib and then making some of our deductions based on these situations where what you're talking about with these secure attachments that we hold, these one-off, like no one isolated incident ruptures or breaks our secure attachment with our child. No. No. I mean, I'm glad that you bring up that research and that you have another episode about that because it really gets construed and it gets thrown around a lot, you know, and it is literally based on actual trauma or based on orphanages of babies left without anyone responding to them for weeks at a time. So it's not the same thing as my baby is tired and cranky and I'm going to sleep train them for a couple of nights. It's not the same thing. And and it's being compared. And it's that's why I feel like Instagram and all of this is actually very confusing for parents because you do like, well, this page says this and this page says that. And so who do I trust? Because that sounds really scary. And so I probably am a bad parent if I even go down that route or even think about it. So I'm just not going to. And, and that's okay. You don't have to, but if sleep is what the parents, caregivers and children need, then I want them to know it's okay. It's okay to sleep train. You're not going to ruin your attachment. It is not trauma. I've worked in trauma, sleep training and falling asleep is not trauma. Yeah. It kind of, not that it should make me chuckle, but when you're like, you know, you've worked in forensics, I can imagine you've seen some trauma. (laughs) You've worked in some trauma. I've seen trauma. Right? And that does not look like maybe like an overly doting or overly anxious mom, like not wanting to tolerate or like feels really uncomfortable with a baby's cry or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like that is not a trauma or like a rupture. And I don't say that to diminish the reaction. So when I use the word tolerating babies' cries, that gets some mixed reactions when I talk about like our tolerance for our baby's emotions on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that we, based on our upbringing or based on our own mental health at the time or our own anxiety levels at the time or our stress or our own functioning, have a different tolerance for different emotions, depending on where we are in our own human experience, right? So I can tell you that as a first-time mom who had undiagnosed postpartum anxiety, my tolerance for even the mildest expressions of discomfort from my child Mm -hmm. were very 
anxiety provoking for me. I had very little tolerance to my child, you know, showing any signs of like struggle or discomfort. Fast forward to mom of three, anxiety in check. And now I can actually regulate myself through their emotion and give some space for them to actually figure out their own emotions for a moment and not have to swoop in and solve that immediately for them. And so a tolerance for dealing with and observing our child's discomfort is actually a skill that we learn in parenting. And if we don't have, we need to learn because observing our child's pain or observing our child. An example of this, my son just started to learn how to skate and he like falls down all the time while he's learning to skate. That feels uncomfortable for me as mom to watch him like just, you know, fall face first on the ice all the time. But he is learning a skill and it's important that he learns it. And so I also have to regulate myself in the discomfort of seeing him learn that skill. And that is not in any way unhealthy. It's actually very healthy for me to learn how to do that. Well, you know, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a good example. And you brought up a couple good points. And one is it is an important skill for us to be able to understand when we need to step in and when we need to sit back. Because even for young babies, they are learning over time their own coping mechanisms and how, you know, is mom or dad or caregiver understanding my cries and my needs and responding? You know, it's possible to under respond. It's of course possible to like, I don't come in there. I don't hear you. I don't respond. It's also possible to over respond and not give babies and children the opportunity to kind of, I'm okay. I figured this out. And that gives them, you know, the opportunity over time to realize that, oh, I can learn things for myself. I can figure things out. And the other side of it is this fear of crying, going back to what you asked before. When we are so afraid of crying, we eventually are teaching our children that there's something wrong with crying. Mm. And so then as they get older, there's this like, oh, something is wrong with tears. Something is wrong with crying. Parents can't handle my tears. And that's not a helpful thing in the long run. We really want them to be able to understand, of course, not newborns and small babies, but over time that I can cry. They can witness me cry, respond to me, be there to comfort me, but crying is okay. And Mm -hmm. it's also okay for me over time to learn how to deal with my own feelings. And so, you know, it goes kind of to what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we don't often equate like the parent's tolerance or where they're at in the over or under responding. Like that often isn't really discussed when talking baby sleep or dealing with anything sort of child's emotions and skills that need to be learned. But I see it as being such a big role. And I think that you sort of alluded to like, you know, some of this is parenting work or a lot of this, well, I guess it's really, you're mostly working with parents, but it's a lot about our own patterns of responding and dealing with things. It is. It is. Because again, when we have the assumption that there's something wrong with crying or that my baby couldn't possibly fall asleep without my help, or if they're crying, they need something immediately, then we're rushing in. We're not giving them the space to fall asleep. We're not just kind of observing what's actually happening here. We're coming in with our own perception of what's happening. And sometimes that can kind of stunt our children's opportunities to learn a new skill, like, you know, skating. (laughs) So if you rush in every single time or take the skates away, or this looks like you're hurt and that's not going to work for me, then he's not going to learn to skate. Right. So you're crying around bedtime. I'm just going to rock you to sleep. And 
Again, if it works, that's fine. But if it's not working for the family or for the child, then it's not really helping in the long run. Mm-hmm. I see you teach about like sleep props. And can you unpack a little bit what those are? And yeah, let's start with what they are. Sure. So basically a prop is anything that is outside of the child that they need to go to sleep. And they might be natural things like feeding to sleep or being held to sleep and all that stuff is fine. But when they need that outside help, then they're really not able to get to sleep any other way. And that will cause the night wakings. Because like I said earlier, we all wake in the night, including babies. But if every single time they wake out of a sleep cycle, they need help getting back to sleep, that's going to cause someone or something to need to come to their rescue, right? Even if it's a pacifier. And that was the reason I sleep trained my daughter. I was doing the pacifier dance all night long. I bought her glow in the dark pacifiers. I was like, you will find as we practice during the day, like, here's how you put it in your own mouth. And still she would toss it out of the crib and I'd have to get it. And I'm like, none of us are sleeping because of this pacifier. So even though her eyes were open when I would put her down, still was doing the work for her and mm-hmm. it was disrupting her sleep in the night. So props, I always like to say props are for soothing, not for sleeping. So go ahead and rock your baby, of course. Feed your baby in the in the bedtime routine. You know, if they like a pacifier to kind of soothe and calm down, that's great. But I try to have parents work on not having it be the thing mm-hmm. that the baby needs to get to sleep because it's going to over time usually impact their quality of sleep or their night wakings. Mm-hmm. I like can still remember the magical day that my son reached out and learned how to put his own passy in his mouth yeah. at like seven months old. And I think like the like sky opened up. It was it was just like, you know, <laughs> exciting. not knowing and understanding the things that I know and understand about sleep now. Maybe we would have tried some things differently, but it was just like, Once he figured out how to get his passy, it was a little bit smoother sailing for us. Well, and some babies do really well with the pacifier once they do learn how to put it back in or they fall asleep with it and they don't look for it again in the night if they wake up. And and so in those cases, it's, again, not a problem. So don't feel like I have to go in there and now take that pacifier out of his mouth and start all over without it you have to take pacifier away at some point. And so I'd rather do it when they're small than dealing with a, a toddler who's negotiating. But if it's not a problem, then it's not a problem. But a lot of times a pacifier is a problem. We don't realize like, well, they're not really falling asleep with it. It falls out. They don't care. But are they waking multiple times in the night for it? Are they taking short naps because of it? You know, so sometimes it can be a problem without us really realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember how long we were in the period of like needing to replace it. It didn't seem like as torturous as my like firstborn. So it couldn't have been too long. Yeah. And then he seemed to like figure out his situation and we just didn't disrupt it after that. That's awesome. But what I'm really hearing in a lot of this, and I think this is so important for us to reflect on for moms, is that there is no one right cookie cutter way. Like different families are going to have different values and approaches to sleep. And really, we start to reevaluate our approach when it's becoming problematic or not working for us. Right. Right. So it's not about here, let me prescribe this is how check, 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 like your sleep routine should work. It's not about this like, you know, this skill trumping this or, oh, look, my baby goes to sleep with it a past year. Yours does this or does that. Like it's dropping all of that competitiveness and recognizing that we each have a different approach, a different sort of combination or different things might work for each family. But if there is a challenge that we're facing in regards to sleep and it's really becoming a disruption, 
there are certainly things that we can be learning or trialing to improve the sleep of the family. Yes, exactly. Very well said. Yes. Yeah. And I just like, I don't know. I feel like I can't stress some of those points enough as we're, you know, hosting a podcast for a mom, often like moms in the postpartum period where like, if your baby is not sleeping, I don't want it to be like, I'm doing something wrong, you know? So how can moms maybe go about finding support or what might be some of the next steps if there are moms listening right now and they're like, oh man, we're up every hour, every hour and a half, and it's just becoming so overwhelming to deal with. What might some of their first steps be? Yeah. So again, for babies under four months old, it's all about practice and there's no sleep training. So if you're in that fourth trimester stage right now, or you're expecting a baby, it's all about practice. And so use those props if you need to go ahead and do it. But the more that you can practice, like putting them down for one nap a day in their bassinet or their sleep space and just let them get used to it. One of my catchphrases is babies get used to what they're introduced to. So the more that we can get them being put down in their bassinet or crib, the more that they're able to kind of, you know, fuss around for a minute without a pacifier or feed them, but then kind of keep them a little bit awake and just see how they do. If they're screaming their head off, go ahead and pick them up and rock them to sleep. Like It's no problem. Mm -hmm. But what you want to try to keep in mind is we want to avoid them getting overly tired. And so for newborns in the first eight weeks, they really can only be awake for 45 to 60 minutes at a time. And that includes their feed and diaper change. So it is like not a lot of time <laughs> after they have a feed, mm-hmm. they're changed. And it's kind of time for like looking in their face for a couple minutes and smiling and then down for another nap. And that might sound crazy, right? Like, oh my gosh, my baby's up for two hours at a time, three hours at a time. They don't seem tired. But what happens is they get overstimulated and that makes sleep a lot harder. And that makes constant wakings happen more mm-hmm. often. So if you can avoid them being overly tired by watching wake windows, So look into wake windows if you don't know what they are. I talk a lot about them on my Mm -hmm. page, but wake windows are going to help you a lot. You also want to kind of start to work on a routine. It's not something that you have to do every single day or do perfectly or do at the same time. But when we can, even for ourselves, have a routine with our little ones of this is getting ready for bedtime. Is that newborn going to still wake up every two hours of the night? Probably. So it's not about like, go to bed and I won't hear from you until morning, but it gives parents the opportunity to put themselves to bed too, right? Like I'm going to now go lie down and get a two, three hour stretch of sleep for myself. So have a little something, a little bath or a warm washcloth and, you know, read one page of a story if that's all they can handle. But just something that kind of says nighttime is different from daytime naps. We're resting now. We're getting ourselves into a routine over time of expecting longer stretches of sleep. And that can really help parents also just our, you know, our own minds to be like, okay, I'm allowed to rest now too. Cause otherwise it's nap after nap after nap and what is night and what is day and what's going on here. Right. Mm-hmm. So I like to encourage working towards routines and it doesn't have to be perfect or long. And then it's really about practice. Like I said, it, the more that you can put them down for one nap a day or really work on bedtime being the time that you put them in their bassinet and see how they do for their longest stretch the more they'll get used to it, the more you'll get used to it. And it's something that you can kind of work on over time without having to stress like this baby only sleeps this way or that way. And I just can't Mm -hmm. do it anymore. And a lot of people don't have to sleep train. So it's not something like, I'm going to deal with this for the next four months. And then at four months, I'll sleep train and things will be better. You can be working on things now. You can be trying to work on these tiny little tips here and there. And ultimately avoid sleep training if possible, right? None of us want to sleep train. <laughs> it's not something we look forward to doing, but it is an option if needed later on. Mm-hmm. 
And even to paint like a broader picture, we as moms and as adults have our own sleep routines that we do in order to cue and prepare our bodies for sleep, right? And finding that right combination is something that is different for different people, might be at different times, look a little bit different, but we all have our sort of like rituals and routines that we do. And those are important because they cue our bodies for sleep and they start to like wind us down in order to settle for sleep. And so for babies, as you start to carve out that routine with them, maybe it looks like a story and then a snuggle and then a song or some pats and then leaving or whatever that looks like. As an adult, we still keep these rituals and routines. It's a washing face, brushing teeth, maybe like reading a little bit, then lights out, then bed or prayers or story or audiobook or whatever that looks like, right? Yeah. So it's so high stakes and it's so we feel the need to do it so perfectly and so right in this season of life, but it takes trial and error and it's something that's going to be evolving into preschooler bedtime routines and now we're in the stage of incorporating homework with my 6-year-old and so his bedtime routine now has to include some reading and it has shifted into his own independent reading and his nighttime and sleep routine has shifted. So it's something that we all do, mm-hmm. but in this stage, we're sort of helping our babies learn how to do it, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And a lot of times when we have newborns, we stop doing our own routine and that affects us too. So like keep your routine, even if it's shorter, even if it's not as much reading as you used to do, but you know, brush your teeth, wash your face, whatever it is that makes you feel like, okay, it's bedtime. That still helps you even in the newborn stage. Yeah. I feel like I could pick your brain about all these different things. Maybe, you know, as we think about and hear the feedback from this episode today, if you guys have more questions for Dr. Aubrey or there is a particular sleep aid or sleep challenges and questions that you guys have, DM them to me, shoot them off to us because we could even come back and do some pointed questions in Q&A to really tackle some of the sleep challenges that you guys face. But thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Where can people find you? You're hanging out on Instagram. Yes, I'm on Instagram at at babysleepdr for doctor, babysleepdoctor. And I do Q&As on my page and my stories a lot of times. I have a lot of free information in my feed. I have digital sleep guides based on age. So if you have that newborn, you can get some tools on how to just work on sleep and set a foundation without worrying about sleep training. But yes, go over to my page if you have any questions, and I would love to answer more questions in the future. Yeah, and we'll make sure to link your page and link some of the resources and guides that we've talked about today in the show notes as well so people can easily click through and find you. And I love that idea of like laying a foundation to sort of try and prevent sleep training or, you know, lay that good foundation from the get-go. So we'll link all of that in the show notes. And thank you. Thank you again for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups 
slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Settling is not an option for Everything me. I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? Because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.